Good morning, church. Let's try that again, because I'm not feeling the love. Good morning. morning. We're delighted you're with us, whether you're online or in the house. I want to begin just with a a real quick announcement. If you have not gotten to know an individual in our church, you need to. His name is Elon Barnes. Mr. Barnes, where are you? I know you're here. There you are. Mr. Barnes, we love you. Mr. Barnes has uh, been a pillar of our church. He's been a scout leader. I think he's got 90 Eagle Scouts under his tutelage. And uh, unfortunately, Mr. Barnes uh, lost his daughter um, to cancer, uh, the great thief. And Mr. Barnes, we want you to know we love you. We're praying for you. And we are going to celebrate her life and give glory to God for her life uh, in this sanctuary on April 27th, uh, which is a Tuesday night at 6 p.m. And uh, Miriam will be leading us in music and Renee. And so uh, we're going to just pray that God surrounds you with his comfort and his love, Mr. Barnes. And uh, we'll be here to celebrate her life. So I just wanted to start with that today because we love you, Mr. Barnes. So just want to let you know. All right. So please be in prayer for him. Amen. All right. So uh, are you excited for week two, Curb Appeal? I'm sure you're ready. Are you ready? Listamos? See? You got three people that speak Spanish here. Come on. All right. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but the devil actually wears a hairpiece. Did you all know this? He, he wears a hairpiece, and, and it's a, you wouldn't know it because it's a perfect fit, really. But anyway, down in the world of fire and brimstone, uh, there was a practical joker that went to hell, and he decided he was going to steal the devil's hairpiece. So uh, he, he sneaks in at night, sneaks past the devil's guards, and he gets into the, the devil's chamber, and he takes his hairpiece. Well, the devil wakes up the next day, and he goes to put on his hairpiece, and he can't find it. Well, he's just, he's bellowing mad, and he calls for his guards, and he's like, how could you let this happen. How can you let someone sneak in? And so he calls an entire meeting of, the, of all his guards, and none of them own up to it. None of them admit that they let the guy sneak in. So then he calls an entire meeting of the underworld. The whole underworld is gathered around, and, and Satan himself stands up, and everybody just starts laughing because they've never seen him without hair. He's completely bald. And of course, this just gets really, really angry. The devil is just bellowing mad, and, and, and he just demands that all of hell be quiet. So all of hell quiets down. And he says, whoever stole it had better return it immediately. And here he paused for effect. And he said, or else there'll be hell to pay. I thought that was funny, you know? So, you, didn't, you didn't think that was funny? I got to have a groaner. Come on, come on. This is what Zach says, dad, you tell the dumbest dad jokes ever. Maybe he's right. All right. So mirror, mirror on the wall. Remember this? Who is the fairest one of all? And it better be you if you're asking that question. But we're in this series about curb appeal. And we're looking at how it's not just about the outside of the house. It is actually on what is on the inside of the house. And we want to focus on how do we get to be fairest of all where the mirror can't see, but where God can. And we're in this series called Curb Appeal. And we're learning scripture like this. Charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, right? You're cute now, but you won't be cute forever. And, and where there's depth of character and specifically a love and a fear of God, that's forever. So I want to talk about today, how do we remain pretty when life is ugly? How many of you ever woke up and said, you know, life's pretty ugly right now? Anyone? Yeah. So what do we do when life hands us a whole jar full of bitter pills to swallow? You ever face some bitterness in your life? Anyone here? Amen. And specifically, how do we not become bitter when the situation that we're put in, right, is very bitter? How do we not become bitter? So the subtitle of this message might be, God has a plan. And I hope by the end of this message, you will understand and understand that God has a plan. And if you can grab onto that and you really believe it, there is an incredible life-changing power that will be unleashed on your life when you just simply and stubbornly and obstinately say, okay, God, you have a plan. You love me. I am your child. I am who you say I am. I know you're fighting for me. And you know what? You have a plan and I'm going to try to see what it is. And I'm going to try to work with that plan, right? Not you bless my ideas, but I'm going to bless your ideas. Amen? Okay, and when you can look at things in your life that seem like messy and chaotic, and and you can say, you know what, even here, God has a plan. I'm telling you something, you'll be tapped into a life-changing 
uh, sort of faith that will change your life. So find someone right now. If you're online, find someone, look them in the eyes and tell them this. If you're here in the church, look someone in the eye and say, God has a plan. Look, find someone and say, God has a plan. Go ahead. All right. Now find another person, the second person, and say it again. God has a plan. Come on. All right. Then just in case you don't get it yet, all eyes up here, let's say it together. God has a plan. Yes. Now, nowhere in Scripture do you see this more vividly than in the book of Ruth. And I want to encourage you to take some time this week to read the book of Ruth. It is four chapters. It will take you five minutes to read, ten minutes if you're a slow reader. Ruth is the name of her book. But it's not written by her. We actually don't know who wrote the book of Ruth, but it's one of two books of the Bible that are named after women. The other one is Esther, Queen Esther. But Ruth is significant because it's the only book in the Bible that's named after someone who's not Jewish. She's Gentile. She's like you and me, okay? So let's, we're gonna look at the, the most of this chapter of chapter one, but you're gonna read chapter two, three, and four, amen? Yes? All right, here we go. Pay attention, because this is going to be a big setup. All right. In the days, there was a famine in the land. That means people were going hungry. Uh, people were starving. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Oh, bad place to live. You don't want to live in Moab. You didn't react like that. Why not? The man's name was Emelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilon, and they were Ephraimites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Emelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women. <gasps> There's that word Moab again, terrible. One named Orpha and the other named Ruth. And yes, this is where the Oprah got her name from, right here. That's a little misspelling there. Anyhow. After they lived, that's a true story. After they lived about 10 years, both Malon and Kilon died also, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So for a woman in biblical times, this is devastation. She has no social security, no government network, no education, no husband, no sons. So the only thing a woman could do in that case was either remarry or turn to the oldest profession in the book. Do you get my drift? All right. So this is devastating for her. Bitterness. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, because they're in a famine, Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws, right, they're still alive, the sons have died, had prepared to return home with her. With her daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. But then Naomi said to her daughter-in-laws, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and wept aloud and said to her, No, we'll go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grow up? That's a little bit of humor here in the Bible. Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you. Because notice, look what she says here. The Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this, they wept again. Then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. She's out of there. See you later. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. In other words, go find a husband. You know, you need to go make your life. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God my God, and where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. And may the Lord deal, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. So this is loyalty. This is agape love. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went until they came to Bethlehem, 
When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? You ever gone back after you haven't seen somebody for 20 years? And they go, is that really you? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty, right? No husband, no sons, I'm empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. May God bless the reading of this word. You can just sense, can't you, church, the severe emotional tone of this, of this first chapter? Amen? Right? It's very stark, and we're given a whole decade of pain and difficulty before we even get to dialogue. But it becomes all the more powerful and more potent when you understand the culture and specifically the identity of the people involved in the story and specifically the names of the people because the names of the people actually tell the story. Okay, they have meaning attached to them. Like Emelech, the patriarch of the family, Naomi's husband. His name means God is my king. At this time, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. It was a time when the nation had pretty much turned away from what God was telling them to do. They had no king. God was meant to be the king of the people, meant to be the leader. They're supposed to follow him. Israelites were a theocracy. It was the only nation around that was a theocracy, meaning they followed God on the kingdom of the face of the earth. They were led by God. But when they turned from God and there was no king, there's no rudder, there's no moral compass. So everybody's like, hey, this is north. And then someone else is like, this is north. And then someone else, this is south. No, that's south. And this is what's right for me. And it was a time when there was absolute moral relativism for everyone when it came to morals. It's whatever you want is good for you. It's so good that our world is is not like that today. I don't think you heard me. <laughs> All right. So people were turning to different idols and they worshiped by different people. So it was a time when there was no king, but there's literally a guy who's got a name that says, God is my king and I'm going to follow God. That's what he says. And, and what's he doing? He's leaving Israel. Why? Because there's a famine and he's turning away from a place where they're meant to be walking under God's blessing, where they're meant to be a light to the nations. And he's going to Moab. <gasps> You're supposed to go, <gasps> go. <gasps> yeah, one person did it. Thank you, Carla. It's the last place you wanted to go. This would be like me saying, hey, folks, I've decided to leave Grace, and I'm going to go start a church in the middle of Vegas. And you're like, we're going with you. <laughs> because is Vegas known to be a great place of morality? What, what is the phrase? What happens in Vegas? What? You tell everyone about, Right. Oh, it stays there. So Moab was Vegas. It was a red light district. Lots of sexual immorality. And the guy who says, God's my king, he's heading for there. Why is he going there? Because there's no bread. Now, irony of the text is, tells us they lived in Bethlehem, which, by the way, means house of bread. This is the worst name ever for a place where there's no bread. By the way, speaking of bread... Who doesn't love bread? How many of you like bread? Man, I could never do the Atkins diet. People are nuts, no carbs. They're just crazy. I mean, yesterday, Renee and I went out to eat, and the waiter asked me the dumbest question ever. Would you like some more bread? That's a dumb question. That's like, would you like to see the dessert menu? Of course, of course. Would you like a refill? Yeah, keep it coming. Keep the bread. Just rub the bread in my face, okay? Is that, is that too much, too much for y'all? I, I love bread. Anyhow, Bethlehem is the house of bread. There's no bread. So the guy leaves the house of bread to go find bread. He turns away from the place where God's king, even though his name's God's my king, and he has two sons. Him and his wife, Naomi, they have two boys, Malon and Kilon. Now, these boys do live up to their names because Malon and Kilon mean sickly and wasting away. Now imagine, what'd you name your child? Sickly. What's your other kid? Wasting away. Now y'all laugh, but I was given an Indian name when I was growing up. I was. My dad gave me an Indian name. He would introduce us like this. This is before my brother was born. There's Sherry or the Sarge of the family. She's always in charge or, or wants to be. 
There's Jungle Jane, that's, that's her name, because she's kind of wild and crazy. And there's our son, Trouble with Math. <laughs> and that was my Indian name, Trouble with Math, because I did not do well in math class. So, so now it's interesting, because Malon and Killon, sickly and wasting away, they both die pretty quickly, which is actually a cautionary tale, parents, for what we speak over our kids' lives. Their names were sickly and wasting away, and they ended up living up to them. Now, of course, I'm not insinuating that's why they died, but let me just say this. Be careful what you speak over your kids and your grandkids. Be careful the way you speak over people because the Bible says your tongue has the power of life and death in it. And there's some truth to this. Like Mark Twain, great comment said, I could go a whole month on one compliment. Like when someone says something encouraging to you and speaks something to you, it really gets stuck in your heart, right? Like, you think I'm good at that? Really? You think so? You you like what I did there? The effort, the time it took for me to do that? That really lifts somebody up. How many of you have really been lifted up by a word of life? Someone in your life said something good. Amen? Yeah. But conversely, we can all, I bet if we went around the room, went online, we could all remember a time when someone spoke death over us. And for years, we just think there's some part of our anatomy that's just weird or dumb or ugly or worthless or too fat or too skinny or your nose has a scar on it. And so when people look at me, all they see is the scar. I really do have a scar right here. Don't zoom in. Or you're not as talented because of what someone said to us. So take heart to the idea that in the heart of every boy and in the heart of every girl, there's a fool and a king and there's a fool and a queen. And who you speak to will rise up. Speak to the fool in your son's heart and a fool will rise. Speak to the queen in your daughter's heart and the queen and the daughter will rise. So we find Malon and Kilon names that they live up to. Emlek, a name he did not live up to. We have in Naomi a name that means pleasant or beautiful. It's lovely and good. Her name, Naomi, it's a wonderful name. But after her husband dies, her two sons marry, and they marry Moabite women. Now, this story would be read in Jewish homes. And when they heard that they were marrying Moabites, they would have just <gasps> sucked in their teeth and gone, oh, my gosh, they married Moabite women. Ha! And that's just terrible. That's not good. And their names were Ophrah and our star, Ruth. And Ophrah means stubborn, and Ruth means friendly or friend. And so friendship is the idea. And for 10 years, they're married to Naomi's sons, right? And things seem to be rebounding a little bit. They're able to work and live in Moab. And for a whole decade, they support financially, socioeconomically, spiritually, Naomi. But then both of Naomi's sons die, and then you have this really odd family. Okay, you have these two daughters who are now technically aren't even related because there's not a relationship to Naomi through their husbands anymore, and that's what she sort of insinuates to them when she says on the road, hey, look, you honored my boys all the way to death. You honored your married vows all the way to their deathbed. But here on the road, Naomi says, you don't need to go with me anymore. And she releases them from their sense of commitment to her because life would be a lot easier for them if they just go back to Moab. If you're still awake, say amen. Amen. This is a lot of setup, I know, but we're going to get there. Now, it would have been a lot harder and a lot worse for Naomi to live at home alone without a husband and to live at home alone without these kids. She's facing utter destitution, poverty, and, and probably death. And in that day, it's a, very, it's a very different culture than our day. A woman didn't have options. She couldn't go get an education. She couldn't go get student loans. She couldn't go live and get a job. She couldn't go become a realtor. And so I used to read this, and I used to think, well, Naomi's kind of messing up getting rid of them. But actually, Naomi was trying to serve them. The Bible says that true love does not seek its own. And Naomi, it would have been a lot easier life to have these two girls to lean on still. But she was realizing there's no prospects for them for a good life in Israel. So she's sending them back to Moab. And she's setting their needs and their interest above hers. And so many scholars actually point to that this becomes the catalyst for Ruth's conversion. This is where Ruth says, you know what, Naomi, your faith is real. Because on the spot right here, this is when Ruth gives her life and follows her life and commits her life to following God right at this moment. 
in the absolute bitterness and devastation of Naomi. Because Naomi's looking out for these two women, and Ruth recognizes that. Now, Naomi was a horrible evangelist. Okay? This is terrible. Naomi, literally in verse 13, she says, God's hands are against me. Let's put that on our website today and see how it goes for the church. In verse 21, I went away full, but God has brought me back empty. Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. If your children come home and say, I want you to change my name, mom, dad, to bitter, something's wrong. Amen? So her evangelistic tendencies are really, really bad. I would not put her on the microphone and say, here, Naomi, talk, talk to the church for us. But Ruth, Ruth has 10 years with Naomi. Ruth's seen Naomi for 10 years in action, and she knows she's having a bad moment when it comes to her faith. You ever had a bad moment when it comes to your faith? Amen? Yeah. But she's loving these two women, and it's challenging and inspiring to want to love like Naomi and to love people no matter what they believe in, no matter where they're from, no matter what's going on in their lives, and you want to seek their best interest, that's love. And that's what Naomi does. And it causes Ruth really to sort of plant her flag of faith and to throw down this gauntlet and say, you know what? I want to follow God. And this is her moment of conversion. I want to follow him all my days. And that's what I'm going to do. So Ruth is at the beginning of her faith journey and Naomi is having a dark chapter in her faith journey. And she's struggling. And now hear me, because we've all been there. She's struggling to make sense. How could a good God allow me to face this? How could a good God allow my husband to die and now my two sons to die and now I'm facing utter devastation and bitterness? How could a good God do that to me? And if you're honest, if you live long enough, you're going to ask questions like that. That's just life. Now, you can't help but find a little bit of comedy in this scene where the two girls at first are like, we're going to stay with you. We're going to do it no matter what. But Orpha, she's like, you know what? You're right. I need to, I'm out. Peace out. Uh, she just bounces. The first sign of resistance, she's like, open door. I tried to hang with you, but good luck with this. She's off. She puts on her clear high heels, right? She's already downloading Tinder on the app and she's going looking for a husband. Now, for those of you who don't know what Tinder is, uh, Google it. The nine o'clock is like, what's Tinder? It's a dating app. Well, sort of. Anyhow. I'm not on Tinder, by the way. <laughs> Renee's like, what's Tinder? I'm like, forget it, honey. So Ruth is different. Ruth says, you know what? I want to go where you go. I'm going to follow God. And Naomi's like, are you sure? Because God's kind of, you know, not doing too well right now. Are you sure? And Ruth's like, no, I, I've seen you. I've seen you. I, I know you're having a hard moment right now. But what you really told him... I'm, uh, me about God and what I've seen in your life for 10 years. I've seen how God's changed your life and I want what you've got. And Ruth is saying, Naomi, you're just saying stuff you don't even mean right now. Have you ever said stuff you didn't mean? Yeah. And I know deep down you have an anchor and I don't have an anchor and I want an anchor. So I'm going to follow your God. And there's going to be lapses. There's going to be moments of spouting off and where you're just human, but she's following God. And Ruth says to Naomi, I want what you got. Have you ever looked at a Christian and said, I want the peace that they have. I want the forgiveness they have. I want the generous spirit they have. I want the love they have. Then that's what you're seeing God in them. And that's what she does. So here in the midst of this ugliness of death, of three deaths, there's new beginning. There's new hope. The force starts to awaken. And there at the center of all this atrocity, Ruth Ruth rises up like a beautiful flower in the midst of ugliness, and she's pretty in the face of ugly. And so how do we model our lives after Ruth? Because anybody like me, I want more of that. I want to respond to the bitter pills that she's been asked to swallow like that when I handle hardship. I, I see four things on her journey. Now, uh, if you're still awake, say amen. amen. And the reason I ask this is because Renee says, this is part two. And Renee said, this is funny when the sermon gets decent. So this is when, no, I'll take it. I mean, Renee's a critic. She's been my critic for 30 years. I'm, I'm okay with Renee criticizing and being critical. It's okay. I get her back. <laughs> but this is when the sermon actually has application. So that was all that set up. And here we go. Are you ready? All right, here we go. 
Four things in Ruth that we could learn from. First of all, perspective. There's great perspective from Ruth. And it, this has been written about by other people. Stephen Covey wrote about it in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Ruth begins with the end in mind. If you want to be a great leader, if you want to live beautifully, if you want to live well, we don't just live in a moment. We, we want to go to the end that we want, and then we want to reverse engineer our life. In other words, if you say to yourself, I want to retire with $2 million, and I hope when I wake up at 70 years old, I have $2 million in my account. Do you think that's just going to happen? You're just going to land on top of the mountain? Hello? What do you think, church? Yes or no? No. No, you're going to go to a financial planner. He's going to say, okay, this is how much you have to put away every month at this interest rate in order to get to $2 million because you're going to reverse engineer where you want to get. The same is true spiritually. The same is true in your relationships, everything. And so what this means is that you should do this, and I've already done it. I've got it written out. It's all ready to go. My dad's done this. My dad's got it all written out. In fact, I have a copy of it. Plan your funeral service ahead of time. Oh, I'm such a control freak. I've planned mine. Y'all can believe that, can't you? Yes. Because you're there at the funeral service. I mean, you're there. Your funeral is coming. It is, you are hurtling towards death at lightning speed. You have never stopped moving towards death from the second you were born. See, think about this. Today, there's less life in front of you than there was yesterday. Thank you, Pastor John. This is a great message. We're glad we're here today. Your funeral is coming. Dun, 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 dun. Potato salad's coming with it. It could be 60 years. It could be 70 years from now. It could be 20 years from now. It could be 20 days from now. And when that day comes and the text message goes out and everyone gets over the shock enough to say, uh, well, when's the service? When's it going to be? What time can I show up to pay my respects? And someone in your family or social circle will be asked to speak a eulogy of. And a eulogy means to speak well of. And that's literally what it means to eulogize someone. If you're ever asked to give a eulogy, they're asking you, could you get up here on the stage and say like a minute or two or 10, uh, something nice, something good about that person's life, about how they lived? It's come and gone. They're on the platform and they're going to speak something of your life. And are you giving them any material? Because I have done thousands of funerals and I have met with families and I have had this happen to me. Well, tell me about Bill or tell me about Sally. Blank stares. And it's not just grief. This is what they do. Well, um, they were nice. Or they go the opposite and give me unusual stuff. Well, he had a terrible drinking problem. Really, and was terribly addicted to porn, and was just terrible. And he, he beat, you know, the children, and, uh, and I'm like, okay, when do you want me to start writing stuff down? Because we clean everybody up at a funeral. Oh, come on. Have you all not been to a funeral? So here's the question. When your uncle or your sister or your husband or your dad or your son stands on that platform, what are you doing right now to cause them to feel like they have an abundance of material or she has an abundance of material to work with? That's living with the end in mind. So you're wanting to live in such a way that when they get ready to write down things about you, they could take 100 pages just from the way you lived in the last year about your character and your integrity and responsibility and your heart of compassion. Instead, well, I think, you know, Fred, you know, Fred, you, you know, cousin Fred, he loved dad best, you know. What do you say about dad, Fred? Well, dad loved his boat. Dad loved his golf game and wasn't really good at game, at the game of golf, but he loved it, you know. And dad, dad had a temper on him and man, five drinks in, you know what I'm saying? See, right now you are writing, you are writing through the way you live your life. You're writing your eulogy. So think about it. In my obituary, in my eulogy that I've already written, I'm an author. I've written three books. Now, you ask me what books I've written. I'm writing them right now. 
I am. I'm writing them right now. I haven't written them yet, but my obituary says I'm an author. (laughs) You're not supposed to laugh at that. We covered this. I'm speaking life and death over things now. You're supposed to go, I can't wait to read it. It's okay. I'll forgive you this once. And Ruth lived beautifully. How? She had the end in mind. Didn't she? Where you go, I'm going to go. Your God's going to be my God. And where you die, I'm going to be buried. And there's wisdom that comes from remembering your end and reverse injuring your life to get to the end that God and you want. So think about it. God, what do you want for my life? What do you you want people to say at my funeral? What difference am I making in the world right now, God? What can I do, God, for your kingdom? And you know what? You don't have to fear death when you're prepared for it. If you're prepared, I never get afraid. I used to be afraid to preach. I'm not afraid to preach. You know how long I go and how I'm not afraid. I don't care because I'm prepared. Now, if I wasn't prepared today, I'd be afraid. But if you're prepared for your death... I don't need to be afraid. I'm still going to be in God's hands. I'm going to go over to the other side. I'm going to be with God. The Bible says a lot of ways, prepare to meet your maker. And only those who are ready to die are really, truly ready to live. Right? If you're in a job and you're afraid of getting fired all the time, you're going to be totally incompetent. But if you're in a job and you're like, I am free to do this job fully and completely, and I don't have to be afraid of getting fired, man, you're going to be successful. You are. So it's easy to be like Naomi and to turn to bitterness. It's easy to say there's no way that God has a plan. And then we make foolish decisions and then we compound the problems. But instead, let's be like Ruth and say, hold on. Great perspective comes from remembering the end. And it's not the end. The end is not here yet. So they're still alive. We're still time to make a difference. We can still do something about it. We can still take action. It's not over. God's still up to something. God still loves me. God still has a plan. And God can do anything in my life. Hello? This is where you get excited. And so we learn from Ruth the power perspective. Number two, I see a great example of loyalty, just stunning loyalty. Her name is friendship, and she lived up to it. She did not change her name from from Ruth, which means friendship and loyalty, to disloyalty. And there's nothing Naomi can do for her. There's no blessings Naomi has for her. There's no money. There's nothing in the will. There's nothing. But there is a lot that Ruth can bring to Naomi and not get from her. And that's friendship. Man, a friend is someone who says to you, you can give me nothing, but I can give you something. Hello? And she was loyal to her friend. And really, your friendships that you foster in life are some of the most important things. The most important things. And the best marriage advice I ever give couples, and I deal with couples in conflict, I deal with couples that have been married a long time, and I deal with couples that are just starting out and they're young and, uh, oh, it's so good, the sex is so good, I can't wait to marry you. Oh, yes. That runs out after some time. Oh, it'll never run out. You're not going to look 20 forever. You're cute now, but you won't be cute forever, trust me. Right? Because in my mind, I'm still 25. I look in the mirror and I'm like, I'm not 25. The best marriage advice I could give to couples is work on the friendship aspect of your marriage. Work on it. Build a great friendship. The best thing about Renee and I is we dated for a while. We had a little summer loving, had me a blast. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We met in the summer. It was like Greece. I was trying to play the tough guy like I didn't care. I was madly in love with her, right? We dated for a while, then she goes off. She goes off to get her master's. Just leaves me cold, stone cold, by myself, lonely. There I am at college. She calls me up. I'm back at Southwest getting my master's. I'm like, you came back for me, didn't you? But we didn't date for a while. We just became friends for like a year and a half. And my mom kept slapping me up the head. Come on, date her. And I'm like, no, we're just friends, mom. But we built a great friendship. And then the romance came. And romance tends to take care of itself if you have a great friendship. When you get, you know, swept off your feet and you feel swept off your feet, that's amazing. But it's not powerful enough to build a life on, young couples. So to build a marriage on a crush is to guarantee down the road the relationship will be crushed. There has to be the weight of friendship under it. 
right? At the end of it, what makes sex great? What makes life together great? What makes all the moments great with my spouse is the power of our friendship, the ability to laugh together, the ability to remain loyal, even in the face of bitterness and to face challenges together. Because, man, the big bad wolf blows on every, every house. So Ruth was loyal to Naomi. And even though she's been a Christian like 15 minutes, loyal to God, she made her decision, that's it. She's not getting talked out of this thing. And Naomi, she tried. And it's some of the worst evangelism I've ever seen in my entire life. Naomi's like, God's been terrible to me. Ruth's like, I want to follow him. You probably shouldn't. I'm changing my name to bitter because that's all God does. You follow him, you'll get bitter too. Imagine if that was our slogan here at Grace. Come and be bitter like us. (laughs) I can't wait to join the church and become one of the bitter ones. I mean, don't make Naomi the greeter at the church. You know what I'm saying? We're going to put her in the back. She's got the gift of administration. Yeah, in the back. Away from everybody. The third thing I love about Ruth is she's got ambition. Ambition. There's some drive in her. I mean, there is some truth to the statement that fortune favors the bold. Yes. And there was boldness to Ruth. There was a gutsiness to Ruth. And there was difficult things to do, and Ruth was willing to do them. And if you read chapter 2 and read chapter 3, you hear what happens. Because they go back home, and Naomi is still bitter. And Naomi says to Ruth, what do you want to do today? And, Naomi, and Ruth's like, well, I'm going to go in the field. And Naomi's like, I'm going to have a cry party and a pity party. I'm going to stay home and feel sorry for myself. Don't you want to join me? And, Naomi, and Naomi's just all sorry for herself. And Ruth's like, I don't want to do that. I'm going to go out. And I'm going to go to the fields, and I'm going to pick over some leftover grain that they leave behind, because it was called gleaning. When you were a farmer, you left a certain 10% behind for poor people to come and glean from. And Ruth and Naomi were poor, so she's like, I'm going to go out into the field, and I'm going to get us some food today while you stay home and cry. That's Ruth. And lo and behold, (laughs) she finds favor there. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to look for a job. I've had people come to me and say, I'm looking for a job. I'm like, how many resumes you got out? None. Well, the Lord, if he wants me to have a job, he's going to bless me with a job. No, the Lord's going to bless you with hunger and bills to pay. Hello? Fortune favors the bold. So she wasn't just... Ruth was not these people that said, I'm just going to be a damsel in distress and wait for the Lord to rescue me. She's like, no, you know what? I'm going to go out and I'm going to go out in the field and I'm praying for this, but you know what I'm going to do? If my prayer is answered, it's going to find me out there trying. It's going to find me out there taking initiative. Hello? One of my favorite examples of this from history is a guy named Frederick Douglass, an African-American who was a slave for 20 years brutally abused by his slave owner. Read his story. He's written three books. He's an author. He prayed for freedom for 20 years. Nothing happened. Here's what he said. I prayed for 20 years but received no answer until I prayed with my legs. He began to pray and he began to move and took initiative and God answered his prayer. What I love about his story is the slave owner's wife secretly secretly was a Christian, and she secretly began to teach him how to read and how to write, something slaves could not do. And she taught him how to read and write, and she told him there's a place where there's freedom in the north, and you could walk there. And so he did, and he prayed, and he went through the Underground Railroad, and then when he got to freedom, guess what he did? He wrote a book about the evils of slavery that white people read and said, you know, slavery's not a good idea. Because this sounds pretty horrible. And he became an active abolitionist. And he was the first ever African-American nominated for the vice president of the United States. His book, by the way, became a bestseller. And his running mate was the vice presidential nominee of Victoria Woodhull on the Equal Rights Party ticket. And he's famous for writing words like, I would unite with anybody to do right and with nobody to do wrong. You should read his stuff. But he didn't sit around and wait for God to rescue him. He prayed and moved. Do you understand what I'm saying, church? Pray with your feet. So Ruth is going to pray with her feet. 
and she's going to take the initiative. And then it says, as it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz. This is, Boaz is a bachelor and a good-looking hunk of a man. So she's out in the field picking wheat and going, don't I look cute? I'm shameless. I don't care. And Boaz is like, hey, who's the cute new girl in the field? And all of a sudden, God starts bringing things together because God has a plan. So it turns out she was in a perfect field. And so she went out trying. And we find favor when we go looking for it. So let's go looking tomorrow for favor. Let's believe God has a plan. Let's try. Come on. Let's have some ambition to try again. So the last couple times you tried your job or your business, it didn't work out, or the school didn't work out, let's not get bitter, let's not get jaded, let's try again, let's go out in the field, let's mix it up, and we'll find favor. She takes initiative. I love this. Now, I am writing uh, some books, one children's story and one book about uh, ministry, and um, I love people, like, you read about creative writers, and they're like, the most creative time you'll find is at 3 a.m. in the morning. Wake up and write at 3 a.m. Guess what? 3 a.m. is a horrible time for me to write. Because guess what I'm doing? Spending time in the Word. That's what I nicknamed my bed, the Word. So when you call, Renee can say he's spending time in the Word. That's a joke. <laughs> Apparently my writing needs some work. But if inspiration is going to find me, inspiration is going to find me Monday morning at 8 a.m., from 8 to 12 on Monday. That's when I really like to write. Whether I feel like it or not, I'm going to show up. I'm going to put in the hours. I'm going to put in the inspiration. And God's going to bless me with creativity. So that's Ruth Spirit. I'm going out in the field. Are you praying for God to bless me? Yep. And if he wants to bless me, he's going to find me hustling. Number four, Ruth's story became a story of nobility. What do you mean? Well, Ruth and Boaz, they meet, they get married. This is Ruth, verse, chapter 4, verse 13. They get to become man and wife. And this is what the scripture says. He went to her. The Lord enabled her to conceive. She gives birth to a son. And verse 17, they name him Obed, who, side note, had a son named Jesse, who, side note, had a son named David. You know David, King David, right? And anyhow, so now there's King David, who anytime he would talk about his great-great-grandma, we're talking about Naomi, we're talking about Ruth. But that's not all, because David has sons, and David's sons have sons, and David's sons, sons, sons have sons, and David's sons, 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 sons have sons. And in Matthew chapter 1 of the New Testament... We get this beautiful list in Matthew chapter 1, which you don't read because it's just genealogy, and I know you haven't read it, but you ought to. It's a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, right? Who's the son of David, who for sure is the son of Abraham. But notice in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 1, it says this, Solomon was the father of Boaz. Oh, remember him? Whose mother was Rahab? Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. So Jesus Christ himself, when he walked this earth, thought back lovingly to his great, 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 great grandmother, Ruth. And for all of history and for all of eternity, Ruth, the Gentile, in the Jewish books of the Old Testament, will be revered as part of the royal dynasty that God used in his rescue mission to send Jesus Christ, his son, to the world. So you go from famine to funerals to looking for hope to dreaming for hope to ambition in the field to looking for hope. And in the midst of all, God is building a family. And in that family, there's room for all of us. In that family, we can have the confidence to look at the hardest things we face in the world and to believe that God is up to something and God is going somewhere in our lives and God has a plan. 
See, we can have perspective and stay committed and be loyal and be ambitious and never give up and never get discouraged and know that we too are part of this royal thing, this nobility thing. That's why we sang today, I am who you say I am because I am a child of God and so are you. You are part of God's family and God's not going to forget his family. God has a plan. He's up to something. He's working. Give him space. Give God some time. Don't rush God. I know some of you are like that. Hurry up, God. But don't be in a hurry. God is really good at setting up things. We feel like there's no way you can do this, and all of a sudden you're doing it. Are you still with me? Amen. And one of the most striking things to me is when Naomi gets back home, she's got girlfriends back home, and they talk to her, and they've known her a long time. And Naomi's just like, oh, life's bitter, life's terrible, this is horrible. And she even says, I, I've come home empty-handed. I left full. I left with a husband and two sons, but I've come home empty. They're gone. I left whole because I, I, I came home with nothing because I left with Emelech and I left with Malon and Kilon, but now I've come home with nothing. And I love that Ruth is standing there and she's like, uh, I came home with you. Hello? She's not offended. And by the end of Naomi's story, they're putting a grandson, a grandson on Naomi's breast. And she's holding a grandbaby. It's so funny. Mr. Barnes told me last week, he said, have you ever held a baby and had the most wonderful feeling come over you? He goes, I'm a great, great, great grandfather to this baby. And he says, the most wonderful feeling in the world to hold a baby and so Naomi gets to hold this baby, her grandson. And now her girlfriends are around her. And she's all like, I'm bitter, I'm bitter. And her girlfriends are around her. And she's holding this grandbaby. And this is what they say to her then. In Ruth chapter 4, verse 14. Praise be to the Lord who's not left you. Your daughter-in-law, Ruth here, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons. Because she gave you a grandbaby. And her girlfriends are like, man, it's amazing that God brought you back here, not empty-handed. He didn't forget about you. Ruth's still with you. And he gave you a daughter-in-law that's better than seven boys, y'all. And this is in a time when men are worth a lot more than women in biblical times. And what they're saying, Ruth's better than seven men. And I love that because the Bible says anytime the thief, the devil takes away something, God has to restore it sevenfold. And I dare you to believe that anything that's left your hands or left your life is not unseen by God. And he has a plan to restore it all and bring it back to you, but even sevenfold. She left empty, but she came back with Ruth, a woman worth more than seven sons. And God used Ruth to bring a grandbaby to her breast that she didn't know about at the time, but it would also be part of bringing her Savior, Jesus Christ, to the entire world. So we can be a people who trust God no matter what. You don't need to be bitter just because life gets bitter, and life will get bitter at times. But God is good, and God is still good, and God still has a plan. He's up to something in your life. And I want to end this message by confessing what Paul told us to confess about our lives. And I'm going to put it on the screen. It's going to be on the TV at home. And I want to say it out loud and it will give us freedom. It will give us permission. It will give us power that no matter what we're facing. And I want you to say it out loud with me. It's from Romans 8:28. It is from the Living Bible, which is a really easy to understand translation. Let's say it together. And we know that all that happens to us is working for our good if we love God and are fitting into his plans, if God is on our side, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son for us, but gave him up for us all, won't he also surely give us everything else? So what is Paul saying? God has already proven his love to you in Jesus. He's already given you his son. What else is he gonna hold back? Nothing. God has a plan for your life. But it begins by you thinking about, what is that plan, God? How can I get there? I've got to reverse engineer this. I've got to be loyal to you. I've got to build friendships. I've got to have ambition. I've got to take drive. And I've got to recognize that I'm part of the kingdom of God. And I'm part of nobility and royalty. And what I do today, my kids will talk about one day at my funeral. It's important. 
You're writing your eulogy right now. I know what my kids are going to say. He told the worst jokes ever. It'll be part of it, but it won't be the only part. What are they going to say about you? Let's pray. God of grace, we give thanks for this amazing story of Ruth and her amazing faith and her amazing initiative and her loyalty and her friendship and how you can take when life gives us bitterness, you can take those pills that we're forced to swallow and change those circumstances and redeem those circumstances and transform those circumstances and make a difference. But God, help us to know that that you don't give up on us, that you have a plan, that you love us, and that you'll never quit loving us. And you've already proven that in giving us Jesus. So God, help us to trust in you, to look for your plan, to think about what you want the end to look like for our lives and begin to reverse engineer it and to recognize how we live today is impacting future generations and that we can be part of this plan of bringing Jesus to the world. What an amazing privilege that is. So God, help us to recognize your plan, to follow that plan, to live in that plan, and not to become bitter when life hands us those pills to swallow. I give thanks that Jesus knew your plan for his life, and he was tempted and wrestled with it, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he didn't want to swallow the bitter pills of death and crucifixion and shame and humiliation, being stripped naked and made fun of on the cross. And yet, Lord, you redeemed even that circumstance and that horrible circumstance, turning the cross into a symbol of hope and resurrection because of what you did with Jesus. And God, if you did that with Jesus, who you love, we know that you'll do that with us and you can redeem our stories as well. So give us the strength and power to believe that and act on it and help us to live as your children because that's who we are. We pray this in the name of Christ who taught us as we say now together, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not in temptation but deliver us from evil. God's kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us at Grace Presbyterian Church. We hope and we trust that this message was a blessing and gave you much encouragement as you face today. At Grace Presbyterian Church, we are a church family that welcomes everyone who welcomes everyone. And we would love to welcome you. So please join us either online or in person. You'll find a community that loves God and loves each other. And we are blessed by other people joining us. So please come and join us at Grace Presbyterian Church.